Hello and welcome to our Forum for Philosophy panel on empathy. This event is co-sponsored by the Royal Institute of Philosophy and is co-organized with Professor Laura Carl O'Malica in connection with her AHRC Leadership Fellows Project on Performance, Philosophy and Animals. You can tweet along with us on hashtag LSC Forum. My name is Sarah Fine. I'm a fellow at the Forum and I teach philosophy at King's College London. Empathy. Empathy seems to play a crucial role in our social, moral and political life. But what is it? How does it relate to cognate terms such as sympathy, concern and passion? Compassion. How can it be generated? And what are its limits? Can there be empathy between humans and non-human animals? Do we need more of it? Or are we in danger of fetishizing it? Why are some philosophers critical of empathy? And can we make sense of our moral motivation and have meaningful relationships without it? We have a wonderful panel to discuss these questions and I'll introduce them to you now. In a late change to our advertised lineup, Professor Laura Carl O'Malica is joining us. Thank you so much, Laura. Laura is head of DAS Graduate School at the Academy of Theatre and Dance in Amsterdam. She's a founding convener of the Professional Association Performance Philosophy. She's joint series editor of the Performance Philosophy book series with Roman and Littlefield. And she's joint editor of the Performance Philosophy Journal. Dr. Nadine L. Anani is reader in law at Birkbeck School of Law and co-director of the Centre for Research on Race and Law. She's the author of Bordering Britain, Law, Race and Empire, published by Manchester University Press this year. And finally, Dr. Danielle Sands is a senior lecturer in comparative literature and culture at Royal Holloway University of London. And she's also a fellow at the Forum for Philosophy. She's the author of Animal Writing, Storytelling, Selfhood and the Limits of Empathy, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2019. And she's currently part of an AHRC funded network, The Philosophical Life of Plants. Thank you so much for joining us, all of you. And we're going to start with Danielle tonight. So, Danielle, your book opens with the line from Franz de Waal, empathy is the grand theme of our time. So would you mind getting us started by introducing us to the concept and the practice of empathy? Thanks very much, Sarah. I'd like to start with a, a short definition from Rebecca Solnit, who refers to empathy as an act of paying attention. And I think this is really useful for a couple of reasons. First, because it suggests a kind of care, interest and engagement, which is central to empathy, but also because it forces us to think about what kind of engagement we're doing when we empathise. Is this some kind of emotional engagement? Is it intellectual engagement? Is it a combination of the two? Now, the term itself, empathy, is quite a recent arrival. So it was coined by Edward Titchener in the early 1900s as a translation of a German term, meaning literally in feeling or feeling into. And I think that's quite useful for us because it helps us to distinguish empathy from sympathy. So if empathy is feeling someone's feelings, 
So for example, feeling someone's pain, then sympathy is more like having a feeling about someone's feeling. So perhaps feeling bad about their pain. And I think we might want to talk a bit more about the implications of, of that distinction. I think one of the challenges we face when we talk about empathy is to make sure that we're all talking about the same thing because lots of different disciplines um, use the term to refer to different mental processes and states. So we might want to think about whether we're talking about an emotional experience, so that feeling of experiencing what someone else is feeling, or a kind of imaginative identification, trying to be in someone's shoes, if you like, or whether it's primarily a cognitive engagement in which we are making inferences about somebody else's mental state. Now, I think what happens as soon as we start uh, using examples of empathy is that we realize that these three different versions or forms of empathy very rarely happen on their own. They're all linked up together in quite complicated and interesting ways. I think one thing that's interesting about empathy is that it raises questions about subjectivity. What is the self doing in the empathetic act? What does it presuppose about the other being engaged with? Um, it also raises ethical and political questions, and I'm sure we'll return to these. Um, is empathy something we should cultivate? Should we trust it? Uh, does it does it lead to moral behaviour? And what does it say about the structure of our society and the role of the individual in that society um, that we seem to be quite fixated on empathy? And I think we can see from, from scholarship across a range of disciplines, from economics, uh, cognitive science, literary studies, and that there is a real enthusiasm for empathy at the moment, as well as in, in popular culture. And advocates of empathy tend to make some pretty big claims about it. For example, the claim that there is something about empathy that's inherent in human nature, and that therefore we can use it as a way to encourage cooperation and solidarity um, in our societies as a whole. Um, I also think it's useful to understand this enthusiasm for empathy in relation to a broader revaluation of emotional experience. Um, so I think one of the claims made here, and again, it's something we might want to interrogate, is the idea that there is something that's pure or natural or trustworthy about these kind of emotional experiences, that we can rely on them and use them. I've, I've said that empathy is very much about how one relates to another, but I've been quite vague about who that other might be. I think in most cases, we tend to be speaking about humans engaging with other humans, uh, but that doesn't have to be the case. So empathetic behavior is certainly evident in other primates. Um, and some of the scientific research done on, on mirror neurons has suggested that the sort of automatic imitation um, in some kinds of primates might provide the roots for thinking about these more complex forms of empathy. And I guess on the other side, we've probably all had experiences of empathizing ourselves with non-human animals, um, with empathizing with their feelings of, of joy, of pain, of suffering. Um, and animal studies scholars have very much thought about how we might use that experience of cross-species empathy um, to ground our, our ethics of non-human life. 
But we might also want to ask about the animals with whom we might find it more difficult to empathise. The cockroaches, the spiders, the snakes, those animals which are not like us or seem not, not to be like us. I think whether we do or we don't empathise, for example, with cockroaches, um, it brings us back to this question of what faculties do we engage with when we're empathising? Are these cognitive, emotional, imaginative, um, or are they a combination of all three? Brilliant. Thanks so much for that wonderful introduction. And at this point, I'd like to invite Laura to respond, if she would like to join. Yeah, I'm, I'm really... Uh, thanks, Danielle. Really interested in that in that last point, actually, um, around this this question of kind of the relationship between empathy and identification and similarity, if you like. Um, so the idea that um, there might be some kind of limit um, to empathy um, to the extent that we're only able to empathize with those who are like us or there's a, a need to extend those limits to really think about how empathy might operate across um, difference. Um, so I was thinking, you know, for me, I guess, when I, I think about definitions of empathy, I kind of start in a sense with those forms of empathy or understandings of empathy that I think I want to get away from. Um, and so one of those for me is, is the kind of claims, I guess, to be able to access the experience of others, whether that's humans or, or non-humans, in some kind of direct or complete way. So for example, the use of the, the term empathy in relation to VR, a VR experience as some kind of empathy uh, machine. And then similarly, I, I think I start from the, the experience of being on the receiving end of, you know, often well meant, but ultimately quite alienating um, kind of uh, kinds of empathy, you know, when people say, oh, I, I know, I know how you feel. Um, and I, specifically for me, I was uh, thinking about my, my own experiences of, of grief, so my uh, my father died in February um, and that gives me a certain a very strong, powerful sense of, of empathy with those others I encounter who have also experienced loss or who are also grieving. So there's this very strong sense of empathy as a kind of emotional connectedness. But then at the same time, for me, as someone grieving, there's an equally strong awareness of the need to avoid simplifying or generalizing my own experience as if uh, the other griever's experience was the same. So, you know, because you are grieving yourself, you feel a connection to others, but I think you also have a stronger awareness of that need to really respect the singularity of someone, someone else's experience, that the way in which they are experiencing the pain of loss, for example, may resonate with yours, may connect to yours in interesting ways, but will ultimately have a singularity and a specificity to it um, that, that needs to be respected. Um, so I, I was thinking about those things. And then finally, I, I appreciated the definition that you began with, that of connecting 
empathy to the the practice of of paying attention um because for me absolutely um uh empathy the kinds of empathy that i'm interested in in thinking about are very much bodily practices so you know there's a lot of writing around empathy um that's very focused on on the brain of course and kind of looking into what we might know about uh, the neurological um, basis for empathy. Um, but I guess I'm, I'm more interested in thinking about empathy as a sort of a more fully embodied um, and, and possibly active um, practice um, that's absolutely linked, as you say, to close forms of attentiveness. So um, how do we... Uh, hold ourselves in our bodies how do we comport ourselves in ways that are more receptive to and open to uh being affected by uh the bodies of others so rather than kind of necessarily associating empathy with a kind of claim to knowledge you know i i know how you feel i guess i'm interested in the idea of empathy as a kind of not knowing really a kind of openness to encounter somebody else somebody else's experience without predetermining in advance or thinking I know in advance (laughs) um, what the nature of that experience is um, which potentially perhaps blocks empathy you know if we kind of think we know already uh, you know how somebody is feeling how their grief feels it perhaps it blocks us from paying attention. That's fascinating. Thanks so much, Laura. And before I bring in Nadine, I wonder whether I could ask you to just expand a little bit on something you said that I thought was really, really interesting around uh, the idea that you're you're not happy with the thought of empathy as access to the experience of others, at, you know, as exemplified through VR experience, and that kind of thing, because that was really interesting to me largely because VR is often held up as something that does um, enable us to generate a special kind of empathy. So what is your suspicion about that kind of that kind of idea? Could you just say a little more? Well, I mean, I guess it it just it seems very problematic um, to reduce and to decontextualize an experience um, to a kind of specific moment within a visual environment so for example to say you know I I know what it feels like to be a uh, an elephant poacher was what you know is one VR experience I've seen because I've dropped into the visual world um, of of that of somebody living that life um, that is separate from you know the full lived experience of that um, of that life, or you know the um, PETA, the animal rights organisation, for instance, has produced a series of uh, VR experiments called I Orca, I Chicken uh, that are, are designed to give human viewers a so-called experience of what it's like to occupy the world of that animal, but of course you know, those are all about visual experiences, Um, you know, and for many animals, their primary, you know, way of experiencing the world, the world they produce for themselves through their bodies is not visual, you know, so it's, it's so, you know, it's very much ordered for an already human 
point of view, but with the claim that it's giving us a kind of secret, uh, secret access to the world of that animal. Wow, brilliant. Thanks so much. Nadine, would you like to come in at this point? I would, yes. Um, really fascinating points uh, made by everybody so far and has definitely got me thinking. And I suppose my one sort of first issue is the question as to whether it's maybe a bit premature to talk about empathy with others before we know whether we can feel our own pain. Because my understanding and indeed my experience of, of pain um, and um, suffering that, you know, including as Laura was speaking about grief, for instance, you know, we have to be in touch with our own pain and be able to feel it and acknowledge it in order then to get to the point where we may be able to relate to others and to feel their pain too. Um, and, you know, one of the sort of ways I like to think about empathy is with this question that you often get depicted in films where, you know, a lover will ask another, you know, where did you get that scar? And, you know, I, I really love that tender curiosity about the pain of others um, because I think that it is, I think as Laura was also hinting at, a sort of reaching across difference and varied histories that shape us and, and make us who we are. And a scar is a kind of secret about that pain and about that painful history. But also once you then engage in that inquiry and you have that response and that trust, um, you, you know, the, the difference dissolves and, and there's, you know, a connecting and a bridging across time, a kind of fusing, a binding. And I suppose I'm interested in that because I'm interested in empathy as being, as you know, maybe holding the potential for, um, you know, uh, bringing people together and moving towards a kind of solidarity and a sort of radical ethic of care around, um, uh, um, you know, organizing with each other and and building collective um, struggle and solidarity um, internationally, of course. Um, and so I suppose that would be um, my my sort of uh, first issue. And then, and then again, like Laura, I'm interested in empathy as an embodied experience, um, because I think that, again, if 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 we are in touch with our own pain and we really we really allow ourselves to feel our pain rather than block our pain, um, we, we tend to our own wounds before we then address others and, and try to tend to the wounds of others. And I think that's important because, you know, I think um, we tend to sort of hurt others in the way that we've been hurt. So if we can if we can be in touch with our own pain and acknowledge our own pain and know and and know about it and feel it, we can then, you know, behave in ways towards others that are, are empathetic, but are also, um, uh, you know, ways that are not are not violent because because, you know, if we understand our own violence, our own capacity of violence, including that against ourselves, we can then sort of limit that against others. And I think empathy and violence sort of kind of need to be taken together because empathy sort of assumes well if you feel the pain of another then you're going to feel terrible about the fact that they're being hurt and maybe do something about that or at least have a response that is um is one that is alleviating uh, of that pain wow really really interesting i just wonder danielle if you want to come back in at this stage to round off this part of our discussion i just want to pick up on one point that i think came across um from both of you really and this is the idea of or the question of how how do we make empathy non-appropriative how do we what kind of work do we need to do in order to ensure that we are not trying to claim the experience of the other we're not trying to claim that we understand it 
We are not trying to bring it back to ourselves in um, in any kind of way. What kind of um, work do we need to do? What and what kind of attitude do we need to have? What kind of humility do we need to cultivate in order to ensure that um, our model of empathy is this sort of generous rather than restrictive and uh, appropriative model? Wow. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Danielle. Well, actually, that leads us on beautifully to our, our, our next part of our discussion, because I want to turn to Laura here to get us started thinking about, you know, why and in which ways empathy is important, particularly in our moral lives. Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, Nadine started talking about this really beautifully in her last um, comments, and I I guess we're in our current moment very struck by well one way of reading our current situation or the the problems that are happening globally it could be to do with thinking about what happens when empathy is lacking um so you know Obama famously talked about what he described as the empathy deficit and of course you know whether or not we want to say that that really is the problem um it's it's surely part of the problem um when we're seeing uh widespread violence when we see uh dehumanization um uh, of all different kinds of people when we see inequality um of response um in relation to to different lives which lives matter which lives don't which deaths matter which which deaths don't which deaths solicit um, empathy, um, processes of, of objectification um, at all different kind of micro and uh, macro levels. So, you know, all of those violences that we're and forms of pain that we're dealing with socially at the moment, we could say could uh, are, are linked to a, a problem around a lack of empathy. Um, I guess in my own work, um, I was I became interested or concerned with empathy or found empathy to be important um, in re- in terms of our relationships to non-human animals. Um, so where a, a, a lack of empathy for the the complex lived uh, sentient uh, experience of animals. So not, not, you know, fully knowing what it's like to be a cow or a pig, perhaps, but a, a lack of uh, sensitivity to the idea that there is something it's like uh, to be those animals can lead to uh, cruel um, and violent behaviours that could potentially be um, adjusted by by greater degrees of, of empathy. Um, and then, of course, there's, you know, as Danielle was saying at the beginning, there, there have been very grand claims um, about empathy and and also about the role that the arts can play um, in, in cultivating that that empathy. Um, so uh, someone like Peter Belgazette, you know, sort of wants to say that empathy is kind of core to a, a sort of a civilized society that we we have a an instinct for empathy if you like and this is what needs to be cultivated through the arts that the arts are especially well um, equipped to 
offer us stories that allow us to put ourselves in in the perspectives of others or to occupy the worlds of others. Um, I don't think empathy is a kind of uh, uh, panacea in that sense. And and I take very seriously some of the criticisms that I know we're going to go on to talk about later that potentially too much of a focus on on empathy um, might mean that we're not looking at, um, we're, we're too focused on individual relationships and not looking closely enough at, at kind of structural um, problems. Um, but I think there's been a, a shift in, in the arts maybe to, to think about the arts as a place where we, we can, uh, cultivate empathic relationships with each other, not so much always necessarily through fictional characters. So, you know, historically, of course, there's been, you know, great emphasis on the role of theatre, on film and literature and so forth to uh, allow us to empathise with fictional characters. But then with companies like Fevered Sleep, uh, so tonight's uh, speaker, David Haradine, was to come and talk to us about about, uh, their practice. Um, As an arts company, it's not about creating fictions or or characters that we can empathise with, but thinking about the role that the arts can play in creating spaces for conversation, for listening, for thinking together, um, in ways that allow us to feel our own pain, <laughs> for instance, as, as Nadine was talking about, and then potentially to move from that to, to empathise with others. So, for example, um, Fevered Sleep have run a series of what they call grief gatherings um, as part of a larger project called This Grief Thing um, that emphasizes the importance of uh, of talking about grief of sharing experiences of grief in order to build the kind of solidarity that you're talking about so I, I like very much this idea or this the prospect of of thinking about empathy or why empathy might be important in terms of a kind of solidarity of feeling which I don't think depends on claiming, to know or to fully access what it's like to be somebody else. But there's a kind of experience of kinship across difference that respects difference, um, but that nevertheless forms the basis for a a kind of uh, shared shared experience or or shared action. Um, But I guess the final thing to say is perhaps empathy is only important um, for me to the extent that it is linked to action. Um, so that empathy in, you know, is empathy in and of itself as a feeling sufficient, or do we understand it as always intrinsically linked to some kind of action? And I know, or response, an appropriate response. Um, so whether, you know, some people talk about that in terms of compassionate action. So if empathy is the kind of, motivator that compassionate action is the appropriate response that follows from that uh, solidarity of feeling if you like so and for me that's the case that when empathy becomes important. Thanks so much Laura that's fantastic. Danielle do you want to come in here? Thank you thanks Laura you've given me lots to think about there. Um, 
I really like this this idea that we shouldn't get caught up in the mechanisms of empathy, that to do so takes us down the wrong path, really, and that we should think more broadly about the modes of engagement which fall under the umbrella of empathy as ways of, for example, avoiding objectification and instrumentalization of human and non-human others and of facilitating kinship. And I, um, I was thinking when you were talking about the necessity of finding modes of empathy that encourage action, um, I was thinking about sort of active forms of listening um, and, and ways in which being empathetic is about listening and witnessing and refusing to speak for the other. Um, and I suppose generating space for those kinds of conversations rather than rolling out a sort of uh, predefined script for them. So there seems to be something very, um, something quite scary and, and risky about those kind of empathetic processes and structures that you're outlining. But that seems to be essential to me if empathy is to be the, the precursor to action that, that you're talking about. Thank you. And Nadine. Thanks. Um, thanks both for, for your comments there. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, again, I think going back to what Laura was saying about trying to think of ways in which empathy can become an experience or something that can can move us towards solidarity. I think, again, I'd want to just take a, a step back and think about how scary empathy can be, um, because, you know, empathy sort of if, if we're thinking about it as an embodied experience that means that we feel in our bodies the pain of others, we, we understand why you might want to look away. Um, you might be afraid because, of course, when you when you look at something terrible, when you hear a story that's really upsetting, if you are in touch with your own pain, you, you can feel that pain in, in, in your body, even if it's something that you haven't experienced. Um, and your own nervous system is triggered and and you, you you know, you have an instinct to protect yourself against pain. Your fight and flight um, mechanism is kind of um, is triggered. And, and, and that's understandable that you would want to then protect against that pain. Um, and so I suppose what I would want to say is that that embodied experience that I would want to encourage is about feeling the kind of seizing and the twisting and the wincing and the the pain that comes um, of, of a kind of somatic empathy where you, where, you, where you really feel that pain, even if it's something that you haven't necessarily experienced yourself. Um, but of course, you know, a, a, as women or women of color, um, often the sort of pain that um, we hear when our friends or when people tell us stories or when we see um, things reported on the news is something that we're familiar with. Because of course, structures of oppression mean that quite a lot of pain is is shared or at least known to different degree of course and disproportionately experienced um, as I'll speak a bit about later but I think that one of the really wonderful things that can come out of that embodied um, uh, empathy and response is is what happens for the other person so often when we're feeling when we're victims uh, um, say uh, of abuse or violence or um, 
we've experienced um, some kind of pain, we might carry emotions like shame and um, fear around speaking about our experience. And, and, and this for me is how we can kind of come together because if somebody has an embodied compassionate response um, to another's pain and actually you can feel this desire to protect that person or to rage for that person or to battle for that person you're already thinking there about um, a really solidaristic response um, because you're angry say about what happened to, to that person and then that person by seeing that response and by by witnessing it and feeling it themselves the the the, the genuineness of that compassion can really have their shame stripped of them and can, can have that pain sort of taken in a way, or at least they can be separated maybe from their, their victimhood to some extent and actually feel empowered. And I think that once you begin to have that sense of empowerment together, um, you can begin to, to work together to, um, to build bonds of love, of solidarity, of, of collective struggle, all the things I think that we need um, in order to, to fight some of the things that we're all concerned about, whether it's imperialism, whether it's um, homophobia, whether it's racism, whether it's sexism, um, because we've been able to have that embodied response and the person being empathized with has been able to feel that and, and to really, yeah, to, 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 to have kind of um, emotions that might be a block to action, like shame and fear and hiding, kind of stripped of them so that people can, can, can come together. Wow, thank you so much. That's wonderful. I, I really like that idea of a kind of reciprocal um, uh, exchange going on there almost, that when we, when we empathise, we sort of take on a cost in some way of, of sharing somebody else's pain. But in that, we're kind of in some ways alleviating uh, them of, of some of it by kind of reducing feelings of shame and so on. So I thought that's, that's really, really fascinating. Laura, do you want to have a, a kind of final word on this session about the importance of empathy? Well, it's just it was just to come back on some of, of what Nadine was saying. I think it's it's yeah, it's so interesting thinking about a kind of the, the sort of exhaustion that that empathy can can lead to. Um, so again, it's sort of going going back or questioning one one's own values about empathy or this tendency or I'm speaking for myself my own tendency to sort of think of empathy as a good thing you know that more empathy must be good um so for example with um with fevered sleep we were doing a project in a in a vet school uh we were and and talking about this you know importance of increasing our empathetic relationship to to animals and, you know, the problem for many vets is about a kind of empathetic burnout that, you know, vets can fall out of their, their training because the, the sort of demands of empathy, of, of feeling, you know, feeling alongside the, the pain and suffering of animals that you're trying to treat becomes exhausting, becomes draining. And so there's an understanding that actually a kind of increased, you know, a, a greater level of distance or greater tendencies towards objectification is a kind of self-protective mechanism for that, you know, the sheer overwhelm, exhaustion of, of, of that um, kind of emotional labour. Um, so I think, yeah, you're, you're right to kind of emphasize that that kind of yeah the forms of empathy that are 
are not light, you know, that are that can involve really entrenched, embodied um, memory that can be traumatic um, to to experience, and and you know the the sort of un- understandable need for degrees of of self protection and and self care um, at the same time as we might be saying, you know, it, uh, you know, empathy has an important ethical and political value. Thank you. And again, that just brings us perfectly on to our next part of our discussion, which is about thinking through the potential limits or problems with empathy. So I wonder, Nadine, if you could kick us off here with that thought. Sure. Yeah. So um, I think one of the things we've taken for granted a bit when we've been talking about empathy between humans is that we all understand by human or the word people to mean the same thing um and unfortunately um because of racism to put it simply um that's not the case um i never know in my writing about migration when i use the word people to avoid maybe more problematic or narrow legal categories or even dehumanizing ones like migrants or refugees whether readers understand the same thing by the term people um and i think it's clear that a lot of the world um, doesn't. And I think that's because of histories of colonialism, racial capitalism that are built um, on ideas of race science and white supremacy, um, which of course remain deeply embedded in system psyches and attitudes. Um, Of course, I'm not going to get into that history here, but what I will do is maybe talk about two um, instances where I think that we can see maybe limits um, to the capacity of empathy to have a transformative effect um, where racism has meant that people are incapable or certain groups of people are incapable of being um, humanized and therefore felt with and have their pain um, um, kind of even registered as pain actually. Um, And so the two instances I'm going to talk about is one was actually an exceptional instance where um, uh, a particular refugee was um, empathized with um, and that, I think, actually, when I tell that story, what I'm going to show is 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 maybe um, is is that it's the exception. Um, and and I want to talk briefly about Grenfell because I think the Grenfell Tower fire is also illustrative of, of the point that I want to make. So um, I was quite surprised in September 2015 when um, the um, the Syrian toddler refugee Alan Kurdi. Um, I wasn't surprised, of course, that 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 he died because thousands of Syrians were dying at the time. But when his body washed up on a beach in, in Turkey in 2015, there was this really strong response around um, what had happened. It galvanized the British public in a way that was unprecedented around the question of refugees. I was so surprised, having been somebody who's kind of been tracking deaths at sea um, for a very long time and having never seen this sort of pain, this suffering registered as something worth, you know, uh, um, a strong response. Um, and so I asked myself, what did white British people, what did white Europeans see when they looked at the photo of Alan Kurdi? Um, and I think that they saw in that photo what they said they saw, which was their own sons, their own nephews. Um, and that was illustrated by a hashtag that was viral at the time called could be my child. Um, so people were sort of taking pictures of themselves with their own children and, and posting them on Twitter saying that could be their child. Now, you know, it, it seemed to me not a coincidence that that Island Kurdi's um, skin color was very fair. I think that this created an ability for him to be humanized in a way that 
um, many refugees, many migrants, sub-Saharan African migrants who die, um, who had already died even just that last spring in their hundreds at sea, hadn't been um, sympathised with in the same way. Of course, the fact that he was a child as well um, uh, did also um, um, aid in that, in that sort of empathetic response. Um, and of course, research shows the extent to which white people feel empathy and humanize others does correlate with implicit racial bias, with negative stereotyping of those with darker skin corresponding to a lower level of empathy shown for them. And as we've already talked about, feelings of empathy are known to encourage cooperation and assistance, whereas um, um, an absence of being able to identify with the suffering of another can lead to violence and abuse, which, of course, as we know, are key characteristics of U Europe's militarized border regime. And I, I had to ask again the question of, you know, what about the refugees who don't evoke in the mind of the white European their own offspring? If we think about, as I mentioned, the images of black African bodies that wash up on European shores um, all of the time. If we think about the bearded male refugee, the woman in the hijab or the burqa. Um, their dark-skinned children. These are all coded, racialized images of Muslims, which inhibit their humanization. Um, we know that Islamophobia thrives in European societies. Um, Muslims are associated with terror simply by virtue of being Muslim. And this leads me on to Grenfell. As we know, 72 people were killed in a social housing block um, on the night of June 14, 2017. We also know that systemic issues lie at the heart of why the fire occurred. Um, uh, but I think that they also lie behind the question of why we haven't seen justice um, or, a, or, a, or a significant or serious official response to, to not only dealing with accountability in relation to um, um, survivors and, and, and those who, who died, um, but also um, in relation to making buildings safe, which exist still up and down the country with the same cladding, um, which meant that the fire spread so quickly in that particular um, instance. Um, again, I would say that this is because of the racialization of the majority of the victims um, as Muslim meant that the violence that they endured didn't compute as unacceptable violence. Um, it, people couldn't read it as the emergency that it was. Um, we know that Britain's colonial history, the war on terror, recent imperial invasions has created a context where violence against Muslims is normalized. So I think that the violence suffered by the Grenfell victims was, Im was imaginable, it was acceptable, and it failed to, to lead to a riot or to a, a response um, that would have been fitting for that level of, 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 um, of harm. It's almost as though the violence didn't actually register with the authorities or significant parts of the spectating public. Um, so we had a situation where violence against Muslims is so normalized. People are so used to seeing um, Muslims as being victims because of the Iraq war, because of Afghanistan, because of drone strikes, that actually their violence on the British mainland could pass as essentially unre unremarkable, even though it occurred in a 24-story tower block in London, in one of the richest um, places in the world, of course, the borough of Chelsea and Kensington. Um, I, so my last point would be that I think that had the victims of the fire been people against whom violence on such a scale is considered exceptional as um, unacceptable, people with whom um, empathy is kind of taken as a given, um, i.e. white people um, in white societies, um, then I think that we would have seen a response that was preventative um, 
and and we would have seen a, a level of um of making uh, effort that to make homes safe that have the same cladding that would have been delivered by now wow thank you nadine thank you um so just out of interest then when we when we're thinking about empathy in that kind of context do you think that empathy is something that can be extended you know that we could kind of practice a way of cultivating a broader version of empathy or are, are we kind of always going to end up with this you know exclusionary element to it that we only we're only capable of feeling empathy in certain circumstances and towards certain other people or uh, non-human animals um, no, I'm I'm optimistic about empathy. I think, as I suggested um, in some of the earlier discussions, um, I, I suppose um, once once this problem has been diagnosed, I think that it empowers us to kind of seeing what some of the structural problems um, that we then are talking about empathy um, in the context of. And and once we're doing that, we can maybe understand why there are limits um, to empathy in certain contexts. But I suppose what I would want to do is to address uh, like-minded people, anti-racists, people who are concerned about um, some of the kind of violence that I've talked about, some of the ways in which particular communities are disproportionately vulnerable to experiencing violence, um, whether the instances I've talked about, whether what we're seeing in relation to COVID-19 and how the pandemic is also showing us how particular groups are, are vulnerable to harm in society because of pre-existing structures. So what I would do is reach out to people who who, who are interested in uh, um, anti-racism and, and building um, bonds um, of solidarity, of collective action and collective struggle, and, and, and think about absolutely how empathy in that context can be something that can have us pulling together, maybe be rather than pushing against each other. And I think that's, again, a really important point to raise in relation to Grenfell, because one of the things that really made me feel optimistic over the summer with the Black Lives Matter uprising is how um, Grenfell United did an action where they projected the words, we can't breathe, onto um, onto the tower, because what they were sort of saying is that, look, our pain is, is like your pain. You know, although we might understand racial violence as being um, a police killing as that sort of immediate kind of violence actually the same last words of the loved ones as uh, as 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 um survivors pointed out of their loved ones were the same we can't breathe when they were calling the emergency services so i think that is um, a wonderful illustration of the way in which struggle can be connected if we want to connect struggle if we want to connect up um, um, um bonds of solidarity um we can do it um, um uh, and I think that we can do that through empathy. Um, absolutely. Thank you. That's wonderful. I'm going to bring I'm going to bring Laura and Danielle back in in a moment. But before I do that, I'd like to comment on some of the audience questions that are coming in. So we've got some really fantastic questions coming in, and I just want to put two of them to all of you. They follow on beautifully from what Nadine's just been saying. So first I want to mention um, Derval Quigley's question. So Derval says that the Black Lives Matter movement has triggered a lot of positive and difficult conversations uh, challenging systemic discrimination. 
And part of what makes them difficult is the lack of empathy or perhaps misplaced empathy that seems patronizing. So can empathy be unhelpful or untrue? And then uh, another question from uh, Prap M is that empathy has been a double-edged sword, particularly in politics. So, for example, populist leaders, nationalist leaders can use empathy to appeal to people who think like them and their ideologies. So while it might work for them, it might alienate people who differ from them. So there's two very interesting thoughts there. One about how empathy can kind of be problematic because it's sort of patronizing and another about how it could kind of work in the opposite direction to anti-racist politics by kind of creating a sense of empathy among a, a kind of uh, populist nationalist sort of politics. Uh, can I come to you to respond to those, Nadine, first and then I'll, I'll come to Laura and Danielle? Um, okay, sure. Uh, yes, I think that in relation to the first question, um, I mean, I don't know, because now we're getting into sort of what empathy is. Is it sympathy? Is it um, is it pretending to understand a situation that you don't? Is it genuine? I mean, you know, we don't really know in specific circumstances what's going on there. But I, I do think that maybe... Um, in order to get to the bottom of whether empathy is, is useful, let's say in the example of um, Black Lives Matter, um, it's kind of important to, to put our finger on what other emotions, what are the emotions that are circulating in empathetic responses um, and sort of the receivers of that empathetic response. And I think if people are feeling guilt or shame um, or a kind of... Um, maybe defensiveness or fragility, you know, that is no position to actually be empathetic. I don't think empathy, real empathy of the kind that we've been talking about, that is this embodied feeling into kind of response is possible if it's, if it's hedged or it's coming from a place of defensiveness or guardedness or um, uh, a, a deep concern around whether you might be responsible for that other person's pain which of course you know we saw sort of rehearsed um a lot and then of course there are um you know blatant co-optation oh we feel really bad for you and really we're just kind of you know taking the struggle and using it to sell a product which we've branded with Black Lives Matter whatever just to put it crudely um so I think it's about working out what's going on in all of those different instances um and maybe, again, I would just go back on that to my earlier point of I think we need to be much better aware of our own feelings and our own pain and our own emotions, whether they be shame or guilt, before actually in a position to be able to genuinely empathize with others. That's what I'd say on the first one. With the other one, I'm not sure that what's going on in that context of appealing to sort of like-minded people politically is empathy. I probably wouldn't talk about that in the context um, that we are. I mean, you could also, you know, describe the exact scenario as dog whistle politics. Um, I'm not sure that's empathy. Um, and again, I would say even in that context, when you are appealing to other people's emotions or seeking to manipulate the emotions of others, um, you know, that is not empathy. That's a dishonest attempt to exploit someone's weakness or someone's injury um, for political gain. I, I don't think empathy has much to do with that at all. That's that's terrific. Thank you. Um, and I'm going to put those questions to Danielle and Laura. And I want to add an, another one into the mix because I think it's really interesting here. So it's from um, Michael Hannon, um, who says, do you think it's possible for us to sustain an empathetic attitude towards others without regarding their perspective as to some degree appropriate? 
needs. So for example, is it possible for me to empathize with my colleague's frustration about some issue without being inclined to think that she's right to feel frustrated? So I think that's that's really a really interesting dynamic to bring in as well. The question of, you know, well, do we do we actually have to agree with somebody or feel that their response is appropriate in order to be able to empathize? Uh, Danielle. Um, gosh, lots to think about there. So my immediate reaction to that last question is is no, um, because there are plenty of times when students come into my office um, with with problems, and I I'm I, I can't relate to their responses, but I can relate to their emotional experience of a situation. So I think there's there's so many different things going on in empathy that we don't have to relate to all the different components of the other person's experience to have a sort of meaningful, empathetic engagement. Um, and I guess just to come back to some of the other points about, um, about misplaced empathy, or I guess the problems about empathy more generally, I suspect I'm a little bit more suspicious of um, empathy than, than Nadine is, or I'm a little bit less hopeful maybe, um, that I think in some ways it feels like a bit of a trap empathy because this appeal to a sort of immediate visceral or emotional experience, um, it's very hard, I think, for some people to connect that meaningfully with the kind of structural conditions which inform that experience. So it's very hard for some people to see their lack of empathy as a consequence of um the bigger ideological frameworks that we're dealing with. And I I think perhaps we need kind of multiple multiple responses here. Absolutely, we need to um we need to expose the kind of ideological nature of um people's empathy deficits in, in particular structural situations. Uh, but also we need to be moving with with other political tools which aren't reliant on sort of individual emotional responses to particular situations. Thank you. Laura. Yeah, I'm uh, reeling, <laughs> reeling a bit around responding, but um, I guess I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm thinking about Breonna Taylor, I'm thinking about George Floyd, I'm thinking we need to go further back <laughs> um, somehow in our processes and and think about children maybe and um, how we how we think about empathy in relation to to education um, and parenting or you know needing to go back to the beginning as it were or go back further to kind of address the the problems around empathy and and race uh that nadine was raising um that there's so much unlearning to do uh for white people um to continuously address the tendency to prioritize and privilege white life um and but maybe i feel more I feel more hopeful about the prospect of doing some of that work of cultivating empathy in a more equal way um, 
with children. Um, but I'd, I'd be interested to hear from Nadine if uh, if she thinks that's if empathy is something you can teach, and if so, where where should that skill be be nurtured, or is that something we do? through how we we talk to our kids um at home is it something that we build into to schools so that you know we're not producing another generation of of children who don't who don't empathize with situations like Grenfell who don't see that as being part of their community a pain that's being done to them but as a pain that's being done to others Nadine, do you want to reply there? Thanks, Laura. I mean, it's really hard. I'm I'm no expert on child psychology, but I kind of feel like ch- children children aren't the problem. It's adults are the problem. Um, I think children are really are good at um, sort of um, kind of realizing or having the children. Children are more in touch with their instincts. Children are more in touch with their feelings. Children, you know. <sighs> I think I think as adults we ha- I, I like the way you talked about unlearning. So I think as adults we've we've learned to dissociate from our pain, which makes us dissociate from the pain of others, which makes us kind of accept a kind of living deadness in our own lives. That means that we're not um, we're not oriented towards the pain of others or around transformation in our own lives or the world is outside or or the world outside or people outside of our immediate domesticities. And I think it's about um, yeah, I think it is about you, and I, and that's where I have hope in our ability to be in touch with our own pain, whatever that might be, our own histories, our own childhoods, where of course a lot of this is already decided for us how empathetic we're going to be, um, and 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 once we're in touch with that, I do have hope that we can reach across boundaries. Um, you know, I'm not talking about just empathy um, or solidarity between racialized people or racialized communities. You know, I'm talking a, a collective struggle, a, a coalitional um, kind of movement, a, a truly anti-racist coalition movement. And I believe that it is possible um, just from my own experience of connecting to people who I might have thought, oh, you know, you don't know anything about my life. You have no idea what I've experienced. I've had those assumptions about people. I've thought you're not going to understand. And I've been proved wrong because I think actually, you know, there is a lot of common ground, but the whole world is structured for us not to see it and not to acknowledge it. Why? Because of it's those in power really gain from that kind of divisive divide and rule kind of tactics. It makes us think that we don't have anything in common with other people and we should just be out for ourselves. And that's a really simplistic way of putting it, but I think that, or I have been proved wrong when I've had those kinds of assumptions that it's not possible. And I think what you say about unlearning is really important because it's the unlearning that will get us to the point where people will be more aware of the structures and the conditions in which empathy becomes difficult between different groups of people. Mm. And of course, a lot of that is about education. Yeah. And then it's interesting that question around whether or not you can empathise Um, with someone with whom you radically disagree and how far that question goes in terms of you know are are you willing to empathize with an oppressor you know is it or 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 someone who acts violently is it should we be you know also empathetic towards the white policeman you know who what is that 
even a helpful emotion or are there limits at this point where you um you you cannot empathize those points of disagreement where where you know beyond which you you cannot go can i come come to this question again of how how we sort of cultivate it whether it's possible to cultivate empathy and where that might come from because we're getting a lot of audience questions about the arts um so for example we have a question from alex legat about um fiction so it follows on from a previous forum for philosophy discussion of iris murdoch and alex asks do we believe that reading fiction especially novels and encountering alterity, otherness, can help to expand our empathy? Does engaging with art in general help us to cultivate more empathy? And then we had a question following up on, um, Laura, your comment about VR, virtual reality. Uh, and this is from Sarah Buabdeli, who says, I was wondering if you could say a bit more about what might be lacking in VR experiences that are meant to place the subject in someone else's position, uh, not only on the visual level. So, for instance, Sarah says there are VR films that are very um, epistemically loaded, perhaps as pieces of literature uh, on phenomena such as racism, ageism, uh, pro-environmental behavior and so on. I, I myself have been involved in a, in a VR experience about migration. So I, I wonder if we could say a little bit more about the role of the arts in helping to cultivate empathy. And maybe we could start with you here, Danielle. I know that's a big theme in, in, in your book about kind of storytelling and cultivating empathy. Yeah, I guess I've, I've got sort of a divided view on it. One is that, yes, absolutely. Absolutely, that's the kind of um, internal work we're doing when we are... Um, engaging with fiction when we are um, engaging with the arts in, in any meaningful way. I think that there's a sort of um, testing out of, of empathy in in some way, a sort of staging of the kind of risky intimacy that I think we've been talking about um, in an experimental way. But I suppose I'm also cautious about um, thinking about the value of the arts in those kind of instrumental terms um, that yes, certainly the, those, the arts help us to cultivate those faculties, but we sh certainly shouldn't be assessing the value of our artistic productions on whether they can do those things or not. Thank you. Really interesting. Laura. Yeah. And I, I agree with that um, caution around instrumentalization which is definitely you know kind of comes to the fore particularly um you know at, at times like this when you know in the midst of a a pandemic the the questions the debates around the role of the arts the supposedly luxurious uh, nature of the arts all start to um to come to the fore again um and often a, a response to that can be to um, to instrumentalize, to emphasize a kind of um, uh, socially transformative um, potential of the arts in a way that can exclude um, the aesthetic, um, the, the importance of the aesthetic. Um, and I, I don't think those things need to be thought about in, in opposition. Um, 
And certainly, I, I guess, um, fevered sleeps work has had a, a, a kind of agenda, if you like. Um, so in a, in a work like Sheep, Pig, Goat, uh, the, the animal project that they did, they were very specifically concerned with the role that the arts might play in uh, cultivating greater degrees of empathy for, for animals. Um, but I, I don't know if that was, is to do with instrumentalizing the arts so much as kind of understanding what the arts can offer as forms of knowledge, um, as forms of embodied practice, for instance, about how we, how we pay attention uh, to other bodies, that something performers are very skilled at is holding themselves in kind of states of not knowing, um, of a capacity to improvise in relation to another body, a capacity to listen with their whole bodies to the, the ways in which uh, an, another body, human or non-human, is, is behaving in a particular context and an environment. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that's so much a kind of use of arts for a particular purpose so much as kind of yeah, identifying the types of knowledge that are held by performers, um, which I think can teach us a lot about the practice of empathy outside of um, artistic um, settings. In, in terms of VR, I am no, uh, no expert, so I'm sure the person asking the question uh, probably knows much, much more about um, VR than I do. Um, but I suppose it's, it was to do my kind of concern is more about any easy or straightforward claim about access to a, a true nature of experience, whether it's for a, a human or for a, an animal that, that can be captured. And I, I guess the point I was trying to make in relation to animals in particular is that um, the VR experience seems to emphasize uh, the idea of point of view as, as visual. Whereas, you know, we could say that the idea of point of view is not, um, you know, the animal's world isn't always about how they see the world. It's about the nature of the world that is produced for them by their sensory apparatus, where actually hearing may be much more important or taste or uh, smell may be much more important um, than, than vision. Um, and so questions around how we might empathize with what it's like to be in the world of that animal might require us to, to shift our sensory apparatus um, as well, um, to not focus so much on, on vision, but to think about how we can access the world that they produce, which isn't just a point of view on the same world as us, but they produce their own world because they have a different bodily relationship to it. So I guess it's to do with the, the seeming reduction of bodily interaction that I see going on in, in VR that is about, is about vision and maybe gestural movement, but not necessarily engaging the other senses that are part of a richer understanding of, of experience. But I'm, as I say, not a not an expert. So Sarah, you've probably got more to say from your your experience of of creating VR. Um, well, uh, one thing that I would say, which I think 
ties in nicely with your point about attention is that one aspect that VR does really well is take us into a world where our full attention is captured. It, 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 it demands that we're 100% attuned to one thing and therefore removes the other stimuli from around us. And that I think that is really effective in, 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 in certain kinds of ways, not least because it just shuts out these other things that usually demand our attention. So there might be a way in which um, certain art forms or certain ways of being with, um, with art forms does that for us it just make it forces our attention onto one thing and one thing only and thereby en enables us to spend time with that thing um but actually i wanted to come back if if we may to this the, the problem of too much empathy if there is such a thing or the way in which empathy might go wrong um so we had a question from chueb about um extreme empathy could kill can we develop this point but i was thinking well one way in which empathy could be potentially problematic is when we when we turn it onto ourselves when in empathizing we make it about us we sort of take on the pain we take on the story we had that discussion before didn't we about how not to make the suffering about us or to appropriate other people's suffering so i wonder if we could think a little bit more about, about that side of thing how do we how do we draw limits how do we stop Stop ourselves from inserting ourselves as empathizers into the story too much. Uh, Danielle, I wonder if you could take us up with that thought. That's a difficult question, Sarah. I think it's just about being reflective about our engagement, really. Um, the, the danger of um, sort of over-identifying over is... Um, is, is losing the kind of self-other distinction in a way which means you're not able to withdraw and then respond meaningfully and then act, basically. Um, so I think retaining this kind of combination of the, the emotional, the, the visceral response whilst reflecting on our own processes while we're doing it and ensuring that we are... Ensuring that we're doing some that we're aware that we're what we're doing and the effects that it's going to have there's actually a really nice question that's come in from Richard Warden here about well we've spoken about empathizing with the pain of others but what about the benefit of empathizing with or in the joy of others can that provide some sort of mutual energy asks Richard um so I guess we could we could talk about both those sides of the coin uh Nadine, would you like to say anything about the problem of over-empathising? Um, I don't know. My instinct is to say, well, we don't have enough empathy. Um, so I'm less worried about the problem of over-empathising. And I, I also think not having enough empathy is worse than having too much empathy. So again, I would maybe say that, that it's, that it's premature and I, or, or that, or that, I mean, and I, I, for me, I think what I want to say is to come back to the question of art and creativity, because I think that it was such a good question, because my feeling around 
empathy and reading and particularly maybe reading poetry is that is it takes me back to that question of being in touch with our own feelings. And I think that if we are in touch with our own pain, our own feelings, we're less likely to over identify with others because we're not trying to compensate for something. When we listen to someone's story, we're not trying to claim it as our own pain because we don't have enough of our own. We do. And if we were in touch with it and able to feel it, we maybe wouldn't need to, to over identify. So what I wanted to say is that I think that, you know, for example, to read a poem, you have to be able to feel because the poem will make you feel. And, you and you know, those who can feel sort of can read poetry because you're kind of thrust into this, whatever emotion the poet is trying to communicate, you're going to have that embodied experience of it when you read it. And that's great practice for being in touch with your own pain and therefore being able to feel the pain of others. And I think creativity, again, it's such an important part of... Um, thinking about how to build movements and solidarity and, and work with others um, for transformative ends. And it's something that, as we know, the arts are underfunded, creativity is not valued as something in society. Um, there are plenty of anti-creativity forces that we're constantly having to try to battle with. But where we do see it is in empathetic response. And I would say, for example, in the wake of the Grenfell Tower fire, you know, when the state wasn't there, the community came together, created Grenfell United, organized aid, food, shelter, etc. Um, and, and Karen Masili, who, whose uncle died in the fire, he talks about pain uniting us and also changing us. And he says that if it hadn't been for the state's abandonment of the community, there would never have been a Grenfell United that, that, that came together. And again, I think we saw it with mutual aid in response to COVID-19 one of the most beautiful things happened, which is neighbors, people, you know, in London, for example, when nobody speaks to each other, neighbors were coming together and in pain, in seeing each other's pain and experiencing pain, looking after each other, fighting for each other in a context where the state was neglecting them, forming these radical empathetic bonds, this solidarity. And these bonds of love, they are things that the state can't break and they are extremely powerful. So I would want, I would want to really emphasize um, just what empathy can do and has already done if we look for it in, in certain places. Thank you so much, Nadine. And, and thanks to our wonderful panelists. We're coming to the end of our time together now, but I'd love to finish on that kind of uplifting note. So uh, thanks to all of our audience members for the really wonderful and challenging questions. Please do join us again on the 9th of November for a panel on the nature of beauty. And until then, thanks everybody and goodbye.